episode 29. Imagine if we reach 100. <laughs> oh my god, could you imagine? How many years did that take? Four it's years? Four years. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? Um, what? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just checking the recording. <laughs> what were you saying there? What was your test word? What? <laughs> okay. Uh, it's going to be one of those Wah. records, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's what, is it kind of always one of those records? It yeah. is, you know? <laughs> yeah, one day, one day we're, we're going to be like, all right, guys, here we are. Let's do this podcast. And then by the end, we're like, hey, great, great episode, everyone. Good job. We all had fun. <laughs> that will be, yeah. that'll be when we know to stop. That'll be episode 100. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. interesting. Today, we're going to be talking about a. What was that? <laughs> I thought I heard something. I said. What? what? I said interesting. The, the noise cancellation is coming out. I'm so sorry. I'm sure it's a very funny joke. I said interesting. interesting. <laughs> Even I heard that one. Oh, to boy. To be fair, you are. In my house, though, I am. So. I am very close <laughs> to you. Yes. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about a main science topic. We're going to be answering a science question, and then we're going to be hopping into a miscellaneous topic. Ella <laughs> did this little little hand signs for each one. I, I didn't know we had those. It would be really funny if you could see what we were doing. If only. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, my name's Tom, and today's main topic is a, a fun meta one, because uh, we talk a lot about how much we love a great scientific term. Uh, we've also had a lot of unpronounceable tongue twister words on the show, and mm -hmm. so I wanted to look at scientific naming and the science of naming. Oh, this is so exciting for me. Across biology, chemistry, physics, oh. and one last science word is maybe the most important, but LIC, you... I'm, really, I'm excited for this because I feel like I have a good background in this area, but I always want to understand where and why I'm saying yeah. the things I'm saying, you know? Yeah, I'm, and I'm very curious. I'm sure you'll, you, both of you will, will have tons of examples. My like background is totally the naming of animals and plants and stuff like that, but the other oh, yeah. stuff, no clue how that process w works, yeah. Also, as you might may or may not guess, gonna be a, there's going to be a lot of naming beef. Boy, howdy. Oh, I'm Ooh. so excited. Oh, I'm actually really excited. Yeah. <laughs> actually. I That's mean, fun. I'm going to edit that actually out. No, no, but no, I'm always excited. But then there's like a, there's something that speaks deeply to your soul. I'm, I'm very glad. I'm Ella. And today's <laughs> question is how many cells are in the human body? Oh, wow. Is this like at any one time or... It's too early for those questions, Caroline. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ella, you know, you know, I love a question that's just like, let's calculate something, and so I'm very. <laughs> let's, let's do maths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is what we're here for, right? Uh, but I think to Caroline's point, uh, to Caroline's point, I think this is going to be almost a philosophical question. So I'm, I'm very, very yeah. excited. My name's Caroline, and this episode's miscellaneous topic is going to be talking all about the items that the British Museum has that it probably shouldn't <gasps> have. Yes! yes! Yeah, I went there. <laughs> I, yeah, I heard the first half, I was like, ooh, is ooh, this gonna ooh. be... Are we going there? Are we going there? We, we're going God, do there. We have, we, do we have time? 
<laughs> time for all of it. We're gonna chat about a few ones that I think are really interesting. Some of the more famous Amazing. ones, and then we're gonna talk about some of the reasoning behind. I it I have as some well. great examples too that I hope I can oh. get in there. Because oh, I'm oh, so excited. I think your topics today are like things that I feel like deeply could connect <laughs> to. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, exciting. But before we hop in, uh, we are looking for questions uh, about us and the show. So just like last time, the last episode of the year or the first episode of the new year will be a Q&A episode uh, to give us some time to take a break, reflect on the past year, and then uh, jump into the new year. So we will be opening up a questions channel in our Discord, uh, or you can email us at letslearneverythingpod at gmail.com. Questions about us, questions about the podcast, questions about anything. Questions could include... What does Tom smell like? Huh. How many toes does Caroline have? Perfect. Well, let's let's throw that question. What out distance there. can Ella see? This kind of <laughs> How far away is Caroline and Ella at this very moment? <laughs> what? Or you know, stuff about the podcast <laughs> and how we do things. <laughs> Whatever whatever floats you about. I forget. Last year did we answer the question? Which one of us would win in a fight or something like that? Yeah. What was that question? And, and, and let's just let's just answer that now very quickly. Three, two, one. Ella. Ella. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Just I to be clear, I would just cry on the floor if I was fighting you, Ella. To be honest, like verbally or physically. Oh God. <laughs> I want to start this topic with a quote from Computer Science. Uh, this is the epigraph for the topic wait i'm um, sorry so a quote from yeah. computer science as in the the yeah. concept of that co- a, a like quote from the, the field, field of computer science okay. <laughs> uh yeah we all got together and we all said it at the same time uh <laughs> it is one of the most famous quotes from computer science okay. it's by phil carlton and it goes there are only two hard things in computer science, cash and validation and naming things. <laughs> Any programmer will tell you this is true. The number of times a typo or changing a name has like fully broken a program is not even worth keeping track of. It just happens all the time. Oh, yeah, that's such a good interest. I didn't even think about the yeah. fact that you have to name things to make it easy or accessible. Yeah. Oh, in... yeah. The number of times you do like a, a quick find and replace and then it ends up like you're just like oh, why don't i just capitalize this because now it'll be standardized and it's like that alone can break things <laughs> also the number of times you like name something one thing and then realize it it has to do some other thing completely and then can't change it because everyone's already using it oh, like names and computer systems are in some ways diametrically opposed to each other but this problem of course is not unique to computer science uh naming can break any system which is why it's not only annoying, it's important. Uh, and so before we hop into scientific naming, one point of clarification I want to make is that I want to talk about naming and not taxonomy, which are definitely related, but also definitely different. Uh, Caroline, one of us still needs to do the What is a Mammal episode that yeah. uh, we talked about before the podcast even started. Yeah, because like... The example that immediately came into my head is what I studied for my master's, which is a species mm-hmm. of toad. Um, and they were originally uh, Bufo calamita, and they changed to Epidalia calamita. And that makes it really difficult in literature to find 
the species that you want to talk about, yeah. but that mm. is because oh, yeah, the sure. taxonomy of it changed yeah. rather than yeah. they just happened to change the name or somebody named it first and mm-hmm. then they changed changed it, which does happen sometimes in yeah. the animal kingdom. And when you bring up this topic, Tom, it, it doesn't... I don't think about taxonomy immediately. I think about um, medical naming, like yeah. diseases. Oh, yeah, we're going to mention medical or, stuff briefly. Or, yeah. you know, anatomy, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But just to clarify that, so like to put it in plain terms, taxonomy is the systematic categorizing of things, like animals into genus and species, and naming or nomenclature is exactly that. It's, it's naming. Uh, in a paper by Judith Winston from the Smithsonian Institute, she describes that, quote, taxonomy is the subdivision of systematics that includes identification, classification, and nomenclature. But unlike the other activities of systematics, nomenclature is a system, not a science. Hmm. And on that last point, I would actually wholeheartedly disagree. I believe that scientific naming is a science. It's just a different kind of science. I I agree with you. Yeah. I don't know if you remember I, a while ago I did a TikTok where I was uh, responding to someone saying why do, it was a it was like a rap song someone was doing where they're saying, why do scientists give pharmaceuticals such boring names like... Oh, li- yeah, 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 yeah. And I came up with, well, s- pharmaceutical naming has a systematic process in which you... There are like very precise rules which I think are, are scientific in their way to make it... Yeah both uh you know locally and universally recognizable mm-hmm. and uh yeah i was like i i don't know i kind of think it is a science in its way yeah. another piece of proof that naming is a science is that there are published papers analyzing scientific naming uh one meta-analysis that i thought was super interesting i think you you guys are gonna love this paper it's from barnett and doubleday and it's titled the growth of acronyms in scientific literature oh yeah (laughs) i mean that's a whole whole kettle of fish right there we can't spend forever on it i just want to dip into this because it's so fun uh because i'm sure y'all have run into your fair share of just like inscrutable acronyms i mean of course we all remember a chew <laughs> oh, yes. um, which is what i would actually call it is a photic sneeze reflex which is when light shines in your eye and you sneeze we talked about this in a previous episode but the acronym is autosomal dominant compelling helio ophthalmic op- outburst outburst you nailed it tom <laughs> or achu which is definitely a what what's the word when you back it's a backronym a yeah. backronym yeah. exactly ridiculous so I think both of you would love this paper. We all love a good meta-analysis, and the data here is just chef's kiss. Uh, How many papers do you think they looked at? 3,000? Five. That, 10, 10, 20, 20,000. 50,000 papers? 100,000. So they analyzed 24 million article titles. No. Oh my god. No. We, you should have yeah. just let us yeah. go on until we reach that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, listeners, we edited that down a lot. They, they, they both just kept guessing for a while. I don't know why. Um, and 18 million abstracts from 1950 wow. to 2019. Wow. Is amazing. Who has the time for that? Well, they... they uh, 
I assume they I used uh, some com- programming. No, nope, by hand. All by <gasps> hand. It no, took them. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, no, they, no, they, they did. They okay. Yeah. Jesus, not for that. Listen, uh, grad students got to do something. Um, and so, uh, <laughs> um, and they found 1.1 million acronyms. But uh, a much more damning point that the two of them found uh, is that from their analysis, quote, Strikingly, out of the 1.1 million acronyms analyzed, we found that the majority were rarely used, with 30% occurring only once. Wow. I kind of get that. I kind of get it. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're when not, I No ra- one here is particularly surprised. It's we're disappointed. Surprised. Like, when you're writing a scientific paper, you have yeah. a word limit normally you can stick within. And if you're using mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. really commonly, you just think, yeah. I better acronymize this mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if you're if it's only been used once then that means oh i not see it's not even really. used multiple times within the same paper that was the question that i was going to ask because like if it's just used once but if they're only analyzing the abstract of it then of course it would only yeah be used yeah that's true because like you would i assume you'd yeah, use it multiple point. times within yeah. the paper in the in the paper yeah that's a great point yeah. you'd hope so wouldn't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. just you, you make an acronym of it and then you never use and, the you acronym. never refer to that like bad fiction writing you make a point about this thing to never return to it again but i feel like jj abrams would call that a mystery box so who's to say <laughs> <laughs> another interesting point that they raise is that there is a finite number of combinations of three letters yeah right there's only mm-hmm. seventeen thousand five hundred and seventy six. And so they bring up a really funny example from Tom Lang in the journal European Science Editing, uh, where he shows that there are 18 meanings of the acronym mm. UA in medical science alone. Wow. So that includes ulnar artery, ultrasonic, arteriography, umbilical artery, unattended, and so on and so on and so on. And I guess you have to rely on the context of the paper to understand Hopefully. which one it is. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to feel bad for the people who have like three words that start with D, N, and A in there. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I can't, D- God I can't make it an acronym. <laughs> We're so close. <laughs> and uh, Barnett and Doubleday also give a few examples of like particularly egregious acronym packed sentences that they found, uh, including, oh. quote, Run has significantly greater size-adjusted CSMI and BSI than C, swim, and psych, and higher size, age, and YST-adjusted CSMI and BSI than swim and psych. That is ridiculous, but I know that, like, if you're in that field... You're gonna read that like it's an like another language to yeah. you, you know. Yeah. And, and and I do want to be crystal clear that in the abstract for the paper, Barnett and Doubleday say, "quote Acronyms are not the biggest current problem in science communication, but reducing their use is a simple change that would help mm. readers and potentially increase the value of science." Um, so I, I bring this up just to, to sort of lead into this idea of thinking about naming, uh, but there are certainly other naming problems. Uh, so let's take a look across some of those sciences. For me, the biggest name in naming is binomial nomenclature, right? Like the na- the way of naming animals by their yeah. genus and their species, like Homo sapiens. Before Carl Linnaeus proposed this idea in 1753, uh, plants would sometimes be named by a polynomial naming system where they would just like describe the features of the plant. So for example, oh boy, <laughs> I practiced this last night. Ranunculus 
calcibus, retroflexus, pedunculus, falcatus, call erecto, folius, compositus. Mm, yeah. Wow. Which would roughly translate to the buttercup with reflexed sepals, curved flower stalks, erect stem, compound leaves, first of her name, the unburnt <laughs> Khaleesi of the Great Grass Sea, breaker of chains and mother of dragons. Caroline's face says no. Good joke, Tom. <laughs> Good joke. <laughs> That's all I needed. Uh... And, you know, binomial nomenclature lets us say, hey, what's a quick, unique name we can give this plant? Let's just call it Ranunculus carophilos or Daenerys Targaryen. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think of the systems we're going to be talking about, binomial nomenclature has done a surprisingly good job for how long it's lasted, almost 300 years, which yeah, is kind of nuts. But it was certainly not without its trials and tribulations. Um, as Judith Winston wrote in 2018, that the present codes of nomenclature work as well as they do is the result of a long history of attempts to name biological diversity. Uh, she mentions that during this like transitionary period, quote, sometimes one would correct the Latin of another, changing the name given by the original author of a species, which I think is is savage to like discover a thing and then for someone to be like, mm, oh, buddy. Take a Latin class. Um, but of course, my favorite foible is one that uh, a guest of ours, Evelyn, has actually mentioned before very briefly, which is that when the two major groups of dinosaurs were being named, they were called ornithischia or bird-hipped dinosaurs or saurischia, which means lizard-hipped, only to later it be discovered that the lizard-hipped dinosaurs are the ones that are actually related to modern-day birds. Uh -huh. So they just fully called that shot wow. and got it completely backwards. And that's just still how they're named. But the, the University of California Museum of Paleontology uh, describes this mix-up by saying, quote, the names don't necessarily have to mean anything. They're just names. That's all. Yeah, I kind of get that. You know, yeah. most people don't know what the Latin roots of that word are. So sure. it's not mm -hmm. going to make that much difference if they're named that way. And like these days, a lot of scientific names aren't even rooted in latin anymore we named so yeah, many sure. animals after celebrities We're and you can i that. think you can pay to have an animal named after you i didn't know uh, that it's my favorite wikipedia page ever uh, <laughs> i hope mm. we go through it a little bit today i i definitely agree but i i will i push back a little bit which is that they aren't just names sometimes names are important um there's a Interesting article by John Alroy titled, How Many Named Species Are Valid? Where he says that, quote, countless thousands of extant named species already are thought to be synonyms, duplicate names for the same biological entity, mm -hmm. or nomina dubia, names without clear reference to a single biological entity. So that can be obviously a big issue when it comes to questions of biodiversity, right? Studying and identifying a single species in a single region can take a whole lifetime of work. So it's important that we are able to coordinate these names to be able to help make these like big picture decisions about plants and animals. So it, it's important. And it almost makes you wish that there were just 118 neatly lined animal species, just like the elements in chemistry. Chemistry was that obviously a transition, does... Tom. Oh, you know it. <laughs> that was, that was... Well, it's not a transition unless you call it out. That was so slick. Wow. <laughs> chemistry obviously doesn't have these kinds of naming problems, right? The idea of two people discovering and naming one of these 118 elements at the same time would be ridiculous, right? 
Yes. Well, on to physics then. <laughs> oh no. Uh, no, this is this is this is where we're gonna get into some naming beef. Are either of you familiar with the Transfermium Wars? <laughs> no. No, but it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so simultaneous discovery of elements has actually happened uh, a few times. But the Transfermium Wars is is the most famous dispute. Um, so it's called the Transfermium Wars because it took place on the planet of Transfermium where the Autobots yeah, live. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and I know it's, um, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it's a dispute about naming the nine elements after fermium on the periodic mm-hmm. table. So Transfermium. So the debate was between elements 101 to 109. And something to keep in mind is that when these elements are being discovered, it's not just like a scientist digs up a purple rock and is like, aha, a new element, let's frame it. Any element above 103 are what are known as super heavy elements, and they have like extremely short half-lives. So to study them, they have to be synthesized, usually by just like smashing other elements into each other, and they exist for like fractions of a second before they just like fall apart. And so it's so tricky to study them that uh, a review of the Transfermium Wars by science historian uh, Hellier Crow explains that one of the problems was, quote, not least, what were the criteria for a conclusive discovery of a new element, right? Like we think of discovering elements like, ah, I find it, I, let me just like take it and show it to someone else when it's more like, how do you even, how do you prove that like in this fraction of a second you've found a new element right and so in the 70s there was this huge back and forth between russian and american scientists as they were starting to discover these super heavy elements with the background of the cold war obviously making it only more difficult Mm. to communicate productively for example flarov a russian scientist was working on these discoveries and before claiming a name he wanted to show some evidence that he was working on and he said quote Unfortunately, there are examples in the history of synthesizing new elements when haste in the announcements of a discovery and naming a new element has led to a situation where a little while after the sensation, only the name was left, but the nature of it was radically revised. Please recall the history of element 102. (laughs) And... That makes sense to be careful. And of course, we, we all know what happened to element 102. Yeah. It just goes we all know. Saying, right? right, Caroline? Right, Caroline? Yeah, totally. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but our audience probably doesn't yeah. know. No, no, the audience probably knows. I think we should move on. No, yeah, yeah. I think, I think Ella, <laughs> you on? should explain it, actually. Oh, uh, yeah, no, I think Tom should. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if I didn't know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was really hoping one of you would. Uh, no, it, well, it's it's just really quite funny, actually. So what happened with element 102 is that uh, a Swedish lab thought they had discovered it first. And so they named it Nobelium because it was discovered in the Nobel lab. Nice name. But then they retracted their claims uh, no. and realized they hadn't actually discovered it. But the name Nobelium was already being used in literature. <laughs> and so it stuck. Oh, so the person who then discovered 102 had to just deal uh-huh, with like the fact that it was properly. already named. Yeah, <gasps> poor, poor 102 discoverer. Yeah, and you know, so so Flareoff is actually bringing up a good point. Uh, but the Americans responded by saying, "Quote: The Soviets have not proposed a name for the element, so they apparently do not feel that their experimental evidence is very strong." Oh, jeez. Oh. <laughs> 
I was going to say, in the realistically, in the outcome of this battle, we know who's going to win because it's whoever is more obnoxious about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really yeah. didn't want to say that, and I did it anyway. I'm so sorry. Yeah, well done. Well um, done. Well, one of the things that does get brought up in the debates is the fact that they're the, so. This was the Berkeley Lab was fighting for this naming, and one of the points the the committee brings up is the fact that there's already I didn't know this. There's already a Berkelium named oh, after Berkeley. Come on. <laughs> Wow. As well as I think there's there's Californium, right? Yeah, there's Californium. And and there's also I don't know how it's pronounced. I don't care to learn. Uh, Americium? Oh my. Ameris Americium? How many American flags are in the periodic table? <laughs> I was about to say like the only thing closer you can get is like the zip code and then you can literally spell out the the address of Berkeley in <laughs> elements, which is that's a sign. That's too far. Um and and so basically, both parties synthesize these elements, but now there's this process of when to claim the name, figuring out who discovered what first, who has a right to name it, what it should be named. And there's so much back and forth that the IUPAC, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry, sets up a committee in 1985 to get to the bottom of this, which they would take 12 years to do. Wow. What? There is this great chart in that paper that I mentioned by Hellier Crow that shows all the proposed names over the years. And it, wow. it just perfectly encapsulates this kerfuffle. Um, over the course of three years, element 106 goes from Rutherfordium to the next year, Seaborgium, then back to Rutherfordium, <laughs> and then back to Seaborgium again. Mm -hmm. Some of the names literally stay the same the whole time. Um, three different elements get named Hodium, and then in the end, none of them get that name. <laughs> Burn. And Nobelium gets put back on the table because they're like, listen, we're already changing things. Can we like put this into our negotiations somehow to like give this back to you guys? It's it's really it's really a mess. But aside from the messiness of it all, there are some really interesting precedents of naming that get established, such as should an element be named after a living person? And I thought y'all would have some thoughts on this. So I'm very curious yeah. what you guys think. I have some basic thoughts. I don't want to get too into it, but like, yeah. I don't know. I don't think anything should, it's, it's kind of like reminds me of um, making a statue for someone. Yeah. You don't know yeah. what's going to come out about that person. You know, Yeah. who knows? You name it after someone who ends up being like, you don't want that as a periodic as an element that's you don't awful. want that like like part of the periodic table forever you don't you don't want to have to deal with that but no. even beyond that i just don't think we should be holding individual human beings up as like idols in that, any way that is that's the, bigger, the other thing yeah, that's like, the bigger thing yeah how many times has an individual person completely independently discovered an element that's also a like good point right? that's also yeah that's such a good yeah. point like the, the people they name like i guess but a lot of them are naming after people they in the past i guess but some of them must be naming it after themselves yeah they must be yeah i will say of the the two names there there are some contenders and and the people who they get named after are 
you know, they're not the person who like presses the button to finally yeah. discover it. They are usually people who have been heavily involved for years and years and years in these fields, you know. So it's not just like yeah. I found it. It's more like yeah. this guy has been like a big is a big name. I think my name my name my main issue is, you know, the like idolizing yeah. someone through that kind of naming yeah. system yeah. is yeah. probably not great. So you guys might agree with the fact that in nineteen ninety four the IUPAC voted six 16 to 3 that an element should never be named after a living person. Oh. Their reasoning was that, quote, the majority of the commission felt it was necessary to have the perspective of history in relation to these discoveries before such a decision was made. Nice. Okay, yeah. I will say, and I'm sure some listeners might feel this way too, but certainly the scientific community at the time felt that it was a little arbitrary um because you know a lot of things in science get named after people's yeah, names yeah. Yeah. and especially yeah. people who do spend so much time working on these efforts want to honor and most of the time it is to honor people more than it is to like aggrandize um and so a lot of people thought that their reasoning was horseshit uh to the point where in 1995 a year after three scientists from Russia the US and Germany all addressed the IUPAC to basically say like, hey, I know we're all fighting each other over names, but we all just want to say we all agree that that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> that was the thing that brought everyone together. Brought them together, yeah. Which wow. I think is kind of heartwarming in a silly way. Yeah. Um, I I'm Wow. I, I never thought I'd be on the against scientific consensus on something. I really yeah. don't believe that we should be naming anything after individual people, including... I, no. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a biologist by trade, and there are lots of mm-hmm. things that I'm aware of that are named after individual people. And I know that yeah. they discovered them, and I know that they put a lot of hard work into it, but I still don't believe <laughs> that they should be named after yeah. them because it's, I don't know, that it, in my head, it's kind of like this is often like decades of work that you're building off the back of someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and will go on far beyond you with people who will make much larger discoveries yeah. on you finding that individual mm-hmm. thing and so it's kind of like I, d- I don't i don't think it should ever be given to one person in a way yeah i guess yeah i think that i think that's a totally valid point uh and i think you'll you'll definitely agree with the physics naming conventions in a second mm-hmm. then um but all to say that the iupac relented and in 1996 they reverted that policy oh wow so by the next year 1997 they had finally <laughs> settled on the names as a compromise between those who had discovered these elements, those who had contributed, and between the Russians and Americans. Uh, and Glenn Seaborg, uh, who was a contender for getting an element named after him, did get his element Seaborgium. Um, and then he passed away the next year. Oh. So Aww. see, okay, that's nice, but the same <laughs> yeah. but the same time. He was he was and in here. Yeah. He's yeah. just one person. And so all said and done, it took these people 30 years from discovery for these names to be resolved. Uh, and now there are actually two elements that were named after living people at the time. Uh, there's Seaborgium and then there's Taylor Swiftium. Um, <laughs> As we know, Taylor Swift is dead. <laughs> that was a reference to one of her songs, by the way. Oh, uh, yeah, right. It was named after the old Taylor. Yeah. <laughs> wow, I'm the only true Swifty here. The old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? She discovered element 118. 
look what you made me do. Um, <laughs> no, it was uh, Element 118 is is uh, Organesen, uh, and it was named in 2016 after Yuri Solakovich Organesian. But in a world with so few elements, it makes sense that there would be so much fighting. Uh, where this debate is untractable is when things get to literally astronomic proportions, uh, such as my favorite example of physics naming, exoplanets. Yes! Yeah. Do y'all know what an exoplanet is and do you know how they're named? An exoplanet is a pl any planet that's outside of our solar system. Nice. I, do I, I don't know how they're named, though. No, I mean, I, I would, again, guess that they're often... Aren't they often given numbers and letters oh, yeah. as their initial yeah. name yeah, yeah, yeah. rather than like a name that we view a name yeah yeah oh, does yeah. that mean that it's a very like scientific almost process like they go up We're gonna in get number into or something okay cool so <laughs> so the james webb space telescope <laughs> has recently uh -huh. discovered or has recently uh, characterized the atmospheres of two exoplanets that are both called wasp w-a-s-p mm -hmm. and i know that they are both the same type of planet which are which are puffy planets, which means they are big gas giants. Oh, fun! <laughs> um, they have much less mass, but are much, much bigger than gas giants in our universe. Yeah. I, yeah. And I was like, they're the same type of planet, and they both have the same name with different numbers after them. So uh -huh. there must be some kind of, like, that means something. I don't know what it means. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. And, and to be clear, like, we definitely need to talk about exoplanets someday i hope we can get an astronomer yeah one of the right. astronomer friends of ours to talk about one day because it's it's so interesting but to get into the the problem of naming do you know how many exoplanets are usually discovered in a year it's either going to be none or loads <laughs> that's a good thousands yeah. Hundreds of thousands. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go thousands. Yeah. So over the past ten years, it's usually been around two hundred a year. Oh, okay. disappointing. That's still quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> two very different reactions there. But obviously, a thing that would change that number is. I don't know, a telescope specifically designed for finding exoplanets, like the Kepler Space Telescope. Mm-hmm. Pour one out. Pour one out for a true, a true hero. That telescope. <laughs> um, so in the year 2016, not 200, but 1,513 exoplanets were discovered. Wow! Of which 85% were by the Kepler Space Telescope. That's mad. In fact, of the 5,211 exoplanets that we've been able to identify, total, over half were discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope. Nice. No way! Which is amazing, but it also does mean that half of all exoplanets are named Kepler. Oh, no! That was going to be my question! Very stupid! Because yep. the way stars and exoplanets are named is by the thing that discovered them. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, Kepler-452b which is one of the very few Earth-like planets that we found so far, so it's definitely like an object of interest. If we break that down, the Kepler part of the name describes how it was found, the Kepler Space Telescope. Kepler-452 is the name of the star that the planet orbits, it's, and it's the 452nd star found by Kepler. And the lowercase b means it's the first planet discovered around Kepler-452 because the star is considered A, 
Okay. And so the first planet discovered oh, is B. Oh, you know what? You're teaching, because I'm doing research about exoplanets right now, and yeah. I'm seeing these like numbers and names. I'm like, I don't know what any of this is. You're literally teaching me <laughs> what I'm reading well, right now. That's because, yeah, the, the naming is, is a whole thing. It's a whole thing in itself. And so, for example, Kepler-37d would be... Well, D means it's the third from the sun. Well, it's it's actually, it's interesting. It's the third discovered, not third oh, from the sun. Not di okay, discovered, oh, not discovered. Okay. okay. Which is a little confusing, but also makes it future-proof because these planets are really hard to see and you might find, you know, years later that there's like a smaller one closer. Right. So you wouldn't have to go through and change all of the planets exactly. afterwards if you exactly. found one that was closer <laughs> oh, to the sun. okay. That makes a lot of sense. Good. Right, okay. So what, were the, what was the number before that? 37 would mean that it's the 37th star that the Kepler Space Telescope found. Oh, that's okay. okay. So if also future proof, but that, then it does become a bit um, <laughs> convoluted, especially when you get other telescopes uh -huh. involved and... Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Well, and also uh, different telescopes use different naming standards. Yeah, so, okay. Uh, some of them don't name it after I, the I telescope. Just, I just yeah. had a look. The So WASP, this pla these planets I was just talking about, which mm -hmm. are hot... Jupiter planets generally <laughs> just anyway mm -hmm. nice. um wide angle search for planets is what it's named yeah, after which is like oh. the mission right? yeah <laughs> which is completely different and I will also say some uh, some include like the year that it was discovered in the naming Why? and some have like extra numbers and letters in there that all That's mean confusing. something for that code uh, I will say there's a really interesting exception for planets that orbit a binary star system because obviously that confuses things because there's two stars. Oh. Okay. But in general, that like lowercase letter rule is usually true. Yeah. And in general, it, it is a pretty handy naming system, especially when you're dealing with thousands of planets being discovered by a single device. <laughs> and like I said, it, it, it's, it's, it's designed to be future-proof, which is a good thing. But of course, as we've discussed, there's a problem with the system, and it's basically the opposite problem that Linnaeus ran into in biology, which is it's not particularly descriptive or meaningful when half of all exoplanets are called Kepler something something. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Every name is 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 too unique. Especially when I assume that these all have like very different um compositions as planets as well. Right. It doesn't yeah, describe totally. the planet. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's it's like if if humans were called uh, Linnaeus 14C and then like oak trees were called Linnaeus 15C. Yeah, it's like yeah. The, the the number proximity doesn't mean yeah. anything. And so in 2014, the IAU, the International Astronomical Union, announced it would be accepting submissions for names for notable exoplanets, like the ones that are Earth-like or hospitable to life. Um, their stipulations include that it cannot be quote names of pet animals, oh. uh, names of a purely or principally commercial nature, names of individuals, places, or events principally known for political, military, or religious activities, Fair. and nice. it cannot be names of living individuals. Ah, but it can be Planty McPlantface. Perfect. <laughs> it's, a, it's a planet. Did you say plants? <laughs> yeah. Like not even planety. No, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, 
And so, you know, they've already named a lot with the system. And in describing the names that they chose, they said, quote, the newly adopted names take the form of different mythological figures from a wide variety of cultures from across history, as well as famous scientists, fictional characters, ancient cities, and words selected from bygone languages. And so there are exoplanets named Quixote mm. and Amateru and Samagia. Uh, there are neighboring exoplanets that are named after sisters from a Thai folktale. Uh, no way. And personally, I think that's stellar. Uh, Ay. Ay. <laughs> and while this lesson for astronomy is important, this exact same lesson is actually gravely important for this last field of science because it's much more important when the letter number jumble isn't Kepler 452b, but when it's H1N1. So I came across this issue from an article from Shine et al. titled, A Flu by Any Other Name why the World Health Organization should adopt the World Meteorological Association's storm naming system as a model for naming emerging infectious diseases. Isn't the storm naming system alphabetical? They it name is, it yeah. after, like, people's names? This is my mm -hmm. uh, understanding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, th yeah, that's it, that's it. And, and, and so we'll get into why... Obviously, I think naming it after humans' names is a stupid idea, but we'll get into why yeah. that system of preparedness is is something mm -hmm. that's very interesting. So this is a it's a really, really compelling paper that was written in the wake of the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. Um, they say, quote, the names adopted by diverse media outlets, governments and agencies, whether swine flu, Mexican flu, North American flu, California flu, H1N1, pandemic flu, influenza A, or some variation thereof have shown little coordination or consistency over time and across communities and media environments. Ad hoc and inconsistent naming practices during the 2009 flu outbreak undermined efforts to implement a robust and effective communications strategy. H1N1's unstable nomenclature contributed to public confusion about the nature of the threat and weakened the credibility of scientific and public mm -hmm. health authorities. As they go on, the associations between pigs and flu led to government policies and public reactions around the world that reflected genuine confusion and political opportunism. Pork imports were banned in Russia, China, and the United Arab Emirates. The wholesale slaughter of swine herds belonging to the minority Coptic community in Egypt, a dramatic drop in pork futures on the stock market, and consumer avoidance of pork products at supermarkets. The World Organization of Animal Health subsequently issued a plea to correct the public's perception that infected pigs or dangerous farming practices were propagating flu and proposed renaming the virus with the term North American influenza, uh, which of course did not catch on. It's why we all still know it as swine flu. Yeah. This is really interesting. I think about like, I think one of the reasons COVID-19 was um, mm -hmm. well understood like globally is because it had this um, simple nomenclature. But I think so coronaviruses are a really common type of virus mm -hmm. uh, that we've had before. So um, SARS is a type of coronavirus. And I think next time another coronavirus arises, which it inevitably will. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is it going to make it what you're saying, Tom? It makes you think, is it going to make it more difficult for us to tackle this as a society? If we're using yeah. the same name, COVID or coronavirus, 
um, mm-hmm, co- mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, are people going to think, oh, we've already dealt with this, you know, it's nothing. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, even with COVID, obviously, there was tons of other names that were going around, like SARS. And they they also mentioned in the paper that it it... it inevitably becomes a political dog whistle Mm. so like with the term mexican flu with with h1n1 and then obviously stuff with like uh like wuhan virus oh my god of course yeah all of the all of the different um strains of of covid that came out Mm -hmm. when they were naming them after it was like the the they were named it like india or sort of south african variant yeah Yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, you know the spanish variant all these things it's like it's just a Mm -hmm. way and then Mm -hmm. and it was politically you could see how oh okay so we're stopping people from flying in from that country then and it's like that's just not how it works you know we know that we know that it didn't start there that's just who reported it first and it's kind of like exactly yeah you're basically shooting the messenger because it's like hey, I'm trying to let you all yeah. know that there is yeah. this variant. And then it's like, ah, it's the Tom variant. It's like, no, guys. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, there's all these disincentives when you're not consciously thinking about it. And so Shine at All's proposal is let's be prepared and be able to name it after something systematic and not confusing, right? Let's have scientists decide the name before anyone else can make one up. And so they say in their proposal, let's base it off of how tropical storms are named, where they go, th- they go through the alphabet and they have a person's name. Um, the reason I think it's a person's name is so that it's like pronounceable. But, you know, obviously using a person's name for a, a deadly pandemic, I think it's a stupid yeah. idea. Um, I think it's weird that they do it for storms. to be <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, like one time when I had to come up with a bunch of names for a computer science project i used uh super smash bros stages so maybe they could do that nice but you know in all seriousness when it comes to pandemics treating naming seriously enough to give them thought and preparation ahead of time is potentially life-saving and so fortunately this paper was published in 2012 which of course would give us plenty of time to implement this before the next pandemic after all who knows when that was going to be (laughs) <laughs> yeah <Ha. laughs> oh dear so as we all know and as we mentioned this same confusion played out again in 2020 basically word for word and so in 2021 the world health organization finally dipped its toes into this concept of caring about names by naming the variants of the coronavirus with the greek alphabet right that's why we know delta yeah Omicron. yeah but they did it after they'd already been named after countries uh-huh so the i think yeah. the Indi- the one yep. that uh was reported in india was the first one delta or whatever oh it took them a while no yeah it, <laughs> they were they were uh they were a little late on that but in their report for the decision they basically say exactly what shine at all said 10 years earlier right they they it's like it reduces xenophobia it allows us to not undermine ourselves when we're changing the name constantly but still the system isn't enough uh, the journal nature noted that quote the world health organization has already used 10 of its 24 letters to describe six variants of interest and four variants of concern that have been identified since december 2020 this means that a new naming system might need to be found so world health organization i know you listen to this show <laughs> i know you're a max fund member Get on it. You know, I think it, I think it's an interesting thing to think about to be prepared for mm-hmm. some of this stuff. So to bring it all together, uh, what we've seen is that names are important, whether it's for identifiability, conservation efforts, scientific glory, and having things named after yourselves. 
memorability and even public safety. Naming things, nomenclature, is this blend of both like systems science and also kind of psychological science. But whatever it is, scientific naming is a science. And if we don't treat it like a science, we suffer the consequences. And we also miss out on the joys because naming things is also fun. And so the, the very last thing I want to end on uh, is one of my favorite scientific names. She may not have discovered a new element, but can y'all guess which animal a biologist recently named after Taylor Swift? <laughs> Ooh, it's often really weird stuff like a stag beetle. Mm. Uh, that's my <laughs> guess. <Frog. laughs> this paper was published April of this year in which, quote, 17 new species were described, bringing the composition of the Wilsoni species group to 24, more than tripling its known diversity. And so the species is Nanaria swift A, or wow. the swift twisted claw millipede. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Nice. nice. <laughs> so the, as the paper describes this millipede, quote, the specific name is a noun in the genitive case derived as a matronym and is named in honor of the artist Taylor Swift in recognition of her talent as a songwriter and performer and in appreciation of the enjoyment her music has brought DAA. And in recognition of her talent as a millipede. <laughs> <laughs> Known for her many arms and legs. <laughs> I'm sorry, the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? She's, She's a, a millipede. millipede. Uh, so that last line was to the appreciation and enjoyment that her music has brought DAH and to come full circle I thought DAH was an acronym for like a team or a lab it's just the initials of the author Derek yeah I was gonna say I'm sure that's just the the person who but really likes Taylor it Swift. makes it seem a lot more professional than being like Derek really liked this her music. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also one other millipede in the paper that is quote named in honor of Marion Windsor Hennon, the wife of DAH, in recognition of her patience, love, and support during DAH's doctoral mm. studies. She grew up Aww. in Augusta County, Virginia, where all collections of this species have occurred, and has participated in her fair share of millipede collecting trips. <laughs> so sweet naming things is a is a very uniquely human problem mm, right like a computer yeah. has no issues with names um but it's also a uniquely human joy and so not only should we critically analyze the issues with naming we should celebrate its successes um so that's that that's names uh -uh. i love names Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalen. Listen, you like podcasts, right? Sure you do. Don't try and lie to me. You're listening to one right now, so why not try a different one called R1, The Flophouse? Uh-huh, and on The Flophouse, we watch a movie and talk about it. And then sometimes we also do other stuff. It's all meant to be funny and fun, and we think you'll have a good time. And just to be clear, the name of the podcast is not R1, The Flophouse. It's just called The Flophouse. <laughs> I do a lot of correcting Dan. The Flophouse, a lot of correcting Dan. So today's question is, how many cells are in the human body? Five. At least five. <laughs> At least five. At least, hey, <laughs> um, greater than five. So wait, no, okay, before, before you guys say anything, yeah. I just want to say, I always seem to do questions that don't have an easy or straight answer. No. And that's, that's fun in its way, but it does uh -huh. get frustrating to want to know something and not get an answer. So this time... 
I, th- I <gasps> thought really? we're getting a fucking answer. <laughs> nice. Are we? Are you... Is this for sure? Before we begin, quick note. Yeah. This does not include bacteria <laughs> and other microbial cells that Ooh. live inside of us, which is thought to be around 39 trillion. And they weigh about oh. one kilogram of your body's weight. Oh. Thank wow. you for that assist in the magnitude that we are dealing with. One day I'll do a topic, I think, about bacteria in the gut and the yeah. microbiome so because it's fun. really, really interesting. But for now, let's take our first guesses about how many cells are in the human body. <laughs> Ooh. <sighs> <laughs> Can I say if I know uh, on the previous episodes the 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 vastness of space sort of wig you out? This is the the vast the vastness of myself is starting yeah. to wig <laughs> me out a bit. Oh god. Okay. So um, just throw any I mean, old, throw any old numbers out there because you know you'll have a I few chances like, as we I, go along. If having not recalibrated from hearing how much bacteria there is, my first guess was going to be like maybe like a hundred trillion, maybe even ten trillion. But it would have been my original so guess. ten trillion. That's is it, obviously my guess is is obviously more than the number of bacteria, right? I could be wrong about that. I don't know. I don't know. Is it okay? Hold on. <laughs> well, when you say it like that, Ella, <laughs> thinking back to like my what my gut says, I want to say a trillion. One times ten to the twelve is a trillion. Just so. Hey, do, do bones have cells? Yes. Oh, uh, so and then and then I'll edit that out. So, Caroline, another thing to consider is that bones have cells. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you. So, uh, just just so you know, so the bones, like um, a lot of the hard parts of your bones, don't have cells. Right. You, but like your calcium. bones are like if you break them or that they're, they're being constantly replenished. So there's like your bone marrow mm-hmm. has cells mm-hmm. in yeah. it, and that is what got is it, kind it. of making up the hard the hard parts of your bone eventually. Is it a number that we have a word for, like a, a trillion? <laughs> we do, we or do, but we don't have a word for that. it. No, no, no. I'm going to say one times 10 to the 16. Ooh, scientific. One times 10 yeah. to the 16. Yeah. That's real big. Uh, that's Is 10 that quadrillion. Yeah. There we go. Good. Fast I'll maths. stick with that number. Boy, howdy. I feel like I would have heard a, a number that. I just Big. I don't know. I want to establish what we mean by the number of cells in the body. Is this like at the point where the number peaks or is this throughout our whole lifetime? I'm very interested in the methodology of yeah, this. Yeah, I don't yeah. know how you would jump how we're you would g- we'll get answer there. this. Okay. So, I think uh, we're going to walk through this walk through different areas of this to maybe try and build up an understanding. So, something you may Start at 1 and we'll keep counting. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom Oh no. No. Oh, no. <laughs> no. You're not wrong because no. something you may already um, know. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> Say that again. So, Tom, you really hit on a very salient point. <laughs> something Thank you. you may already know is how many cells are in a human up to a certain stage of development. Because we kind of touched on this two weeks ago. God damn it, that would have been the best! That would have been the best answer! Do you remember <laughs> is what a zygote to, is? To a conception! <laughs> Do you remember what a zygote is? Yeah. Is that is that's the one of the first stages of, mm-hmm. of development? It's not one of. A sperm and an egg? It is, is the first? The first. And how many okay. cells does it have? It's, it's, it's two, right? 16? One? It's one, because they form one? It's one cell. Is it one? It's one cell. <sighs> God... Oh, that sucks. I hate that answer. <laughs> okay, so... Oh, that's a real, that that's a real like, uh, uh, a what? riddle problem. I don't want the answer, oh. Ella. Take that's your not... answer. <laughs> that so... sucks. Well, although, okay, on the one hand, 
On the one hand, that sucks. On the other hand, um, I had not thought about it from the, counting from that perspective, from like a ground up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like thinking about replication. So Tom, your answer of at least five earlier was wrong. Was oh, actually so wrong. like... <laughs> wow, that was actually, yeah, objectively wrong. <laughs> so between two and six days later, the zygote was split into... How many cells? Oh, also, just really quick, and I'll edit this out. I'm totally willing to change my philosophy of when life begins if I can get this answer correct. <laughs> you cannot edit that. <laughs> you heard my it. My rules are flexible to my ability to get a number correct. Okay, between two and six days later, the zygote will split into how many cells? Starts as one. Plus into two? Two cells. And this is called <laughs> the two-cell stage. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, talk about great naming. Got that. Then, <laughs> Got that mm -hmm. I won't make you carry on doing this. It then splits into the four cell stage, then four. becomes the 16 eight. cell stage. No, way. no not eight. Tom. 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 <laughs> Tom. <laughs> you sweet bean. You can do this. Oh, I need to stop saying numbers. So, I need to stop saying numbers. The 16 cell stage then turns into a mass of cells, like a, a dense mass of cells called the morula. Which is it has about sixty cells. Then this becomes mm. something called the blastocyst, which has two hundred to three hundred cells. So we st already start losing track around here because mm -hmm. we don't know exactly how many cells are here, and we can't look because, as we've talked about previously, there is a certain point at which we can't we can't look at embryos anymore legally. Yeah. So maybe counting from the bottom up isn't the best way to do this. No, I was gonna be like, oh, it must be a multiple of two then. <laughs> it's like no, that's mm, not. No. <laughs> We could look to animals instead. When I was researching mm. this topic, I was what I was hoping to do with you is play a game of higher or lower with the number Ooh. of cells in different animals. But it turns but... out that people don't have information <laughs> for these yeah, animals. I was going to say, Ella, having tried to do this exact same thing with bones, yeah. I don't know who's counting cells. I, again, again, I don't know how, you, how we even begin to do that. Well... The thing is, we do know the exact number of cells for some animals. Really? Yeah. Oh, what fucking bacteria? No, I don't even. I don't even mean that. So, C. elegans, which is a type of roundworm, and um, that uh -huh. we, we use as a model organism, we know that there are exactly one thousand and thirty-one cells in every single species of C. elegans. Get out of town! Every single individual. What? How, did somebody like wait, 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 sit wait, and wait, count wait. that? Yeah, I mean, it's really well established because it's a very, very commonly used model organism. Oh fuck. So, yeah, I don't know uh, how I feel about that. Because that means that not only did somebody sit and count it once, but somebody sat and counted it <laughs> multiple times. We know really well. They kept the, counting. The small number of cells in C. elegans is one of the reasons it's a great model organism, because you can see yeah. exactly right. what happens to everything during development. And if you make a mutation in it, then you can see exactly what goes wrong and how this becomes an issue later on in development. That's super interesting. You say 1,031? Mm-hmm. That's Fun. really blowing my mind to know that. And, and it ac across all individuals? Yeah, unless there's something wrong with them. That's... Regardless of life stage? Yeah. Or... Wow. I mean, well, as an adult, so wow. they, they yeah, become... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. For, like, that, though, like, surely that means that, like, a taller human has more cells. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Right, I, when we get to that we'll level. We'll get to yeah. that that's, point. That's wild. An average lab mouse is estimated to have around three times <gasps> 10 to the nine, oh. which is three billion. Oh boy. 
Oh, oh cells. Boy. Hmm. I know how many rats I am. Rats. <laughs> it's more than that. Oh, that's such a fun question. <laughs> how many rats are you? How many rats are you? That's my favorite buzzword. Maybe quiz. at the end of this, you can figure that out. But the thing is, <gasps> I couldn't find a good source for this information. It seems to be more of like uh -huh. a very general of estimation. Course, of course. Yeah. So don't go telling your friends that you know this um, because you might embarrass yourself. When you go to a party um, and you say, I know how many cells are in a mouse. Well, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay for us to share well, it on okay. the podcast. Uh, Ella, I will say, even if you're correct, you're still embarrassing yourself. <laughs> 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 oh. So here's the thing. We don't have any clear estimates for animals, our size and shape, importantly. Okay. So this isn't helpful either. So something that might help us at least understand this larger question a bit better is this. How many types of cells are in the human body? Mm, at least one. I've learned my lesson. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I gotta say also, that's a very interesting way to break this down. Because yeah. it is like, can we like calculate percentages and then like mm -hmm. by mass maybe mm -hmm. that's like a way to mm -hmm. get at it mm -hmm. or like looking at each individual organ and looking at the mm. range of masses i'm i'm really kind of wild i don't know this uh i feel like i should i'm gonna say like 20 maybe okay is that, is that i can't tell if that was a good or a bad reaction caroline go quick i'm gonna guess like a hundred thousand different oh, types wow. of cells. You fuck both me. really fuck you, okay wow okay in orders of magnitude, I guess Tom is closer. It's 226. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That checks out. That makes sense so in my mind. Cells, cells are the building blocks of your body. You yeah. Know? But like Lego, they don't all come in the same shape and size. Some mm. are wheels, mm -hmm. some are doors. Are there more wheel cells or more door cells? Stop. Beautiful we analogy. Wow. <laughs> no way. We, we, uh, Ella opens up another document on her computer that's just like, we've entered the wheel and door domain. We must now. <laughs> we must finish it. When I was writing that joke out, I was like, Tom would write this joke. <laughs> oh my God. Would I? No, my joke was going to be, um, if it's the Legos, it's going to be wheel cells, door cells, those super cool helmet cells, <laughs> the, uh, nice. the lightsaber brick cells. But getting back to the question, as as I said, yeah. our, our cells come in all shapes and sizes. Um, do you know mm -hmm. what the smallest cell in the human body is? I fucking don't. I know what the largest is. They're all so is. small. <laughs> uh, answer that in a second, Caroline. Nice. Uh, uh, here's a hint. It's only found in one of the two of you. Oh, is it is it an egg then? Smallest no, sperm. No, what am I talking about? Sorry. Yeah, sperm is sperm is smaller. Smallest. Yeah. So yeah, in in males. That's interesting. It, it's sperm, which is about four micrometers long. A micrometer, for mm -hmm. those who don't know, is a thousandth of a millimeter. So very, very, mm -hmm. very tiny. Although the tail of a sperm is about fifty micrometers long. And fun mm. fact, there are about 40 to 200 million sperm cells in one milliliter of semen, which I find terrifying. <laughs> Ew. That's so many possibilities of children. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, wait, so how many again? 40 to 200 million sperm cells in one mil. I'm adding that to my tally mm -hmm. of all cells. <laughs> so this, of course, gives me a chance to repeat my favourite science fact. God damn it, Ella. <laughs> <laughs> the fruit fly sperm. Christ 
is six centimeters Whoa. long, which is twenty times longer than the length of its own body, and about a thousand times longer than human sperm. Do we have to make? Is is that when we can finally put this this fact to rest when it turns into murder? I will never ever stop telling you. I haven't said it for like six months. Oh. Wow. <laughs> is that? I feel like I've heard you say it more recently than that. I don't think so. Does it have to? <laughs> Jesus Christ! I don't want to. I don't want to blue balls you on your sperm facts. Yes. <laughs> you will literally never be able to stop me. So in women, the smallest cell. <laughs> in funny. women, the smallest cell is a granule cell in the cerebellum, which is just a mm. little bit bigger than sperm. Do you know? What, mm. I, was, I was about to say, do you know what the largest cell is, Caroline? What is the largest cell? The egg cell in females, which is. Visible to the naked it eye, is. I do believe. So this is yeah. called an ovum. Oh. It's one mm-hmm. millimeter in diameter, which is huge for a cell. Holy whoa! But yeah. I actually mm-hmm. find this fact really confusing because motor neurons, which carry signals between your brain and muscles, can have mm-hmm. axons as long as one meter yeah. long. So unlike the tail of a sperm, the axon is actually part of a cell. So I always found this. That's very. That's an interesting distinction. Huh? I always found this really confusing. I, I maybe they're talking just about the body of a cell being mm. the biggest mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. in which mm-hmm. case an, an egg cell ovum would be easily be the biggest. But I do think that motor neurons, in terms of actual size, are the biggest yeah. that I know of. I, uh, this is also. I will say it's a fun reminder of how many different kinds of cells there are. I really had forgotten about <laughs> yeah. some of these. So does huh. any of this help? At all? (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, I don't know. It makes me want to bump my number up a little bit thinking about all the different kinds. I don't know, because in my head, I'm just thinking about a bunch of little circles, right? Yeah, but what I'm saying, the point of this is that it's not a bunch of little circles. It's a bunch of tiny circles and huge circles. And there's no, it's not just like a... uh... Actually... Yeah, that makes me want to say fewer almost because there's mm. like variation and there's space and there's structure. Mm-hmm. It's not just like, uh, it's less like a Lego thing made up of a bunch of the same size stud. There's like four by twos and there's like single stud pieces throughout the whole body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe maybe less than, than my original guess. Well, you know what might help? If you let us Google. The average, <laughs> yeah. do you know how much an average cell Ways. Oh. No clue. <laughs> literally, yeah. literally no clue. Like, oh. So, so does that mean, could you take like the average weight of the number mm-hmm. of cells and the weight of oh, the human? Oh, if you know the proportion of cells, then you can, and you know. Oh. I'll tell you. Yeah, please do. Is it like a, like a, like a milligram? A milligram? Like a Are you insane? <laughs> Tom, you have think come about, out with some... Think about what your guess was, which real. was a trillion. A trillion milligrams? Stop. Stop using math against me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like this. The average weight of a... Mem- this is a safe space. <laughs> the average weight of a mammalian cell is estimated to be one nanogram, which is mm-hmm. a Nano. billionth of a gram, or 10 to the nine times smaller, which is 10 to the six times smaller than a, a, a milligram. Oh. <laughs> um... I will. Can I be honest? I, I feel like we don't we don't talk about small weights very often. No, you know? no, we don't. Like a, a nanogram is very, and I, it's a fun way to conceptualize that is like mm-hmm. the weight of a cell. I feel like we don't talk about like yeah the weight of small stuff that. Well, often. you can bank that now for future topics. Yeah. For future cool party tricks. The average yeah. weight of a cell is a mammalian cell is one nanogram. So mm-hmm. in theory, you could do the maths to get something like an answer here. Do either of you want to try that or should I just move on? 
Uh, nanogram. Uh, uh, no, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely fucking not. Here's a no. test for the yeah. test for a listener. You can figure out roughly what the answer is right now if you do this. Yeah, based on that. So, <laughs> moving on. In the past, researchers have put anything in the range of 10 to the 12, which is a trillion, which is, was Tom's guess, yeah. and 10 to the 16, which is 10 quadrillion, which was Caroline's what? guess, as their answers. No fucking way! But oh. no fucking way! So you guys are in the right range. But also that range is massive. It yeah. It is actually huge. It's kind of like when yeah. you think about the difference between being a millionaire and a billionaire, where uh-huh. you could mm. earn a hundred thousand yeah. pounds for ten years and be a millionaire, but it would take you something like what? How many years? A hundred years or over a thousand years to yeah. become yeah. a billionaire? <laughs> The way I'm thinking about it is like, that's basically like me saying, I think I could fit 10,000 humans into what Caroline thinks a human is. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like, yeah, that's yeah. A... If you, it's, these, are, these are like planetary size differences. Yeah. You know? And one of those guesses is way off and pretty stupid if you think about it. But the other one's pretty spot on. Someone here is right. <clears throat> or are they? But they seem... <laughs> so scientists do seem to do this with... Pretty much no reference at all. So you have these like mm. people saying there are this many cells in the human body for, you know, dozens and hundreds of papers, but there are no references for this. It's just something they're saying. Of course, of course. Wow. And the authors of the paper we're about to talk about took an issue with this. <gasps> oh, oh, yeah. I love when a scientist questions a number. <laughs> every every time a scientist questions a number, an angel gets its wings. <laughs> <laughs> So the following information comes from a 2013 paper titled An Estimation of the Number of Cells in the Human Body. Sweet and simple. Perfect. So it's an estimation, but we should get a reasonably clear answer from this, which is amazing for me. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The authors begin by making a very valid point that you guys have already touched on, that cell number and size of various organs or systems, as well as the size of the organ or system itself, may vary according to parameters like age, sex, weight, of course, of health, course. Yeah. or evolutionary ad- adaptations. So for the purpose of their study, they decided to use a hypothetical 30-year-old adult weighing 70 kilograms, 1.72 meters in height, which is 5 foot 8, with a body area of 1.85 meters squared. So this is kind of like an average adult male. It's probably about Tom. Ding. Nice. But how do you think they worked it out? How would you work it out? You've you've kind of already Ask talked them. some of <laughs> Do a do a cell census. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Measuring the like the mass of the organs individually. Did they take a dead body and like weigh their <laughs> organs and then No, so I don't know if that was a good or a bad laugh. Uh, no, 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 they didn't do any dead body stuff. But the thing is they didn't it personally do anything themselves because right, yeah. they did a big sweep of primary literature and textbooks from oh, 2012 clever. back to 1809. <laughs> no way. Wow. Whoa. To find papers which had calculated how many cells were in certain organs. Wow. You two have had some great meta-analyses in your topics. Today. Yeah, yeah, right. I love really... to see it. And this was done through like hugely various ways. Um, like mic- microscopy analysis, spectrometry, weight, yeah. lots of different ways. I 
as a like computer science person, I don't envy this meta analysis. That fact no. seems like there's a lot of fine grained stuff you gotta weed out. No, and and it's really interesting when I was reading the paper, seeing how they did the the and all kind of searching and what they had to like yeah. include and not include and say, especially since a lot of the people would reference stuff and with no would say a number with no references and they right. have to like then right. individually yeah. go through and see what was actually oh, referenced God. or not. Oh. Bless these people for doing the work. Wow. For organs, they couldn't find information on. They did mathematical modeling. So based on the morphology mm-hmm. of the organ, like the the general average size, shape and weight. And mm-hmm. then they did modeling of the kind of knowing the size and shape of the cell types within it. So quick question. I just have to ask this. Uh-huh. What is the largest organ in the human body? Skin. The skin. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good job, guys. I was really hoping you'd get it wrong, but I am happy you got it right. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the largest uh, sperm size to uh, relative size of the body for the animal? <laughs> I, I was doing. I was doing some research for some for my job. And somewhere said that uh, the liver was the largest organ in the human body. And I almost, I exploded with rage. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, the, the, the number gets uh, inflated by Liver George, who has a million livers in his body. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I made the most horrible noise then. <laughs> What's the, what's the what's what's oh, the meme there? So it's like funny. the spider Livers Georg who eats ten thousand <laughs> livers a day. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't. So I'm gonna, not going to make you guess the number of cells and organs because I think it Thank would just you. get ridiculous. Thank you. Thank I'll give you. you some examples from the paper. Yes, please. So I'm very adipose curious. cells. These are fat cells. About fifty billion mm-hmm. in this average seventy kilogram person. Heart cells okay. six billion. Nervous okay. system three trillion cells. Wow. Well, okay. Well, yeah. So. Wow. <laughs> Hold on. At first I had to accept my loss, but then I was like, I guess, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it goes on. Really, really dense. Yeah. Mm. It is very dense. Everything's very tightly packed. And and all of this adds up to an answer. Wow. And we have an answer. (laughs) The answer in the paper. 1,031. It's 1,031. Some of them cancel out. It's 37 trillion. Wow. But that's smaller than I... Thought it would be, yeah. But don't, don't Ella, do this to me, what, Ella. What? Ella, don't what's do that face I've, for? I've literally already written down thirty-seven trillion. I've gotten the tattoo made already. I... Don't do this to me. <laughs> when I was reading all no, the articles what? for this, every all the articles kept on saying there are thirty-seven trillion cells in the human body, according to this research. But there are thirty-seven trillion cells, and I got. And I started writing this topic, and I, oh, and I did all this research oh, no. for this topic. Oh, no. Ella, I'm in your house. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> and then I read the paper. And at, the, at the end of the paper, <laughs> and the paper it said, we didn't calculate all the organs in the body. We just did some of them. We did a lot of them, Why? but not all of Hi, them. Hi, excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Hi. Hi, it's me. Uh, what the fuck? What the fuck? So what the fuck, Teddy? Right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the this isn't the answer. This is just some of the answer. 
we just started counting and then we what? were like, that's a lot for today. What proportion of the answer is it's it? It's quite a lot. I would say it's like 80%. Okay. okay also, And I also want to say, it, it's it's probably not the researcher's fault. Oh, no, no. I know this everyone... is not on them. Yeah, the yeah. way this oh, was no, communicated course, but... was poor. And I'm mad at all yeah. these yes. articles where I was Googling this. I was like, got really excited about this answer that I finally found. And the, when I read the paper, which I was already too deep into writing it. <laughs> no. I was like, it's too late. And you're like, it's too late. I guess it's another one where we don't know. So yeah, that's the answer. The answer is we don't, we don't know. At least 37 <laughs> At trillion. Least 37 trillion. <laughs> At least 37 trillion. The, the authors of the paper say this is just a baseline for other people to correct and add on to. But they say they, they sure. just wanted it to yeah. be a start, which is fine because it was a lot of work, as we talked about. I'm sure. So yeah. 37 trillion so far. And I, so I personally feel like after hearing all those billions and trillions numbers thrown around, yeah. there's something yeah. like quite anticlimactic about hearing this. Yeah, it's big. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. That's a really good point. You know, it's like hearing about the number of stars in space. It starts to feel meaningless. It's, it's big, but so what? What is the point of all of this? Well, Ella, it sounds like the real knowledge was the counting we did. <laughs> <along> the <way. laughs> why um, do you Why do you guys think that they did this? What What do you think the point is? Ella, that's a fantastic question because <laughs> it wasn't to appease us. It wasn't for podcasters. That's you know what curiosity is a good a reason as any for doing something. Yeah, totally. That is not why they did it. That's, oh, can I ask, can I, you know what? Could it have to do with um, possibly diseases like cancer where like knowing the number of cells Ooh, is useful yeah. for... That's exactly it. Knowing the number of cells yeah. in a body can help us understand and treat disease. So, for example, in this study that we just talked about, they estimate that healthy liver has around 240 billion cells. But studies on liver chirosis have shown that a liver with chirosis has as few as 172 billion. So you're losing, mm. you know tens of billions of cells it's useful to know that this wow. isn't normal and what the extent of the loss is and yeah. knowing precise cell Super numbers could also, could also be crucial in understanding the biology and kinetics of cancer like tom said and developmental disorders where organs don't fully form mm, mm, mm. Ah. It, it can also be helpful for the development of computer models of organs which require precise information mm, about mm. the number of cells which people are now using to use in diagnostics and these kind of numbers are also essential for understanding the evolution of multicellular organisms. Mm-hmm. Mm, mm. Uh, where we started, uh, you know, with much fewer cells. For example, from C. elegans, 1,031 right. cells, to us now 37 trillion. But for me, I just find it amazing that more than 37 trillion cells are working together to make a single functioning human being oh. that's so nice sometimes some of them don't do the job they're meant to do as i'm sure we all know but even <laughs> then the other 30 trillion are selflessly cooperating so we can breathe whilst listening to a podcast whilst driving to work <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of incredible that is incredible you're right yeah that's really wild and you know what it makes me optimistic for the future when hopefully other researchers will take this on and, and get right. us that get us that number i feel like we'll One probably day. learn better techniques to do it as we go yeah. as well yeah. Yeah. they did it very laboriously um and i feel that there are probably going to be refinements in the way to do this later on so i think that'll be interesting 
Hey, it's John Moe inviting you to listen to Depression Mode with John Moe, where I talk about mental health and the lives we live with all kinds of people, famous writers. David Sedaris, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Movie stars. Jamie Lee Curtis, welcome to Depression Mode. I am happy to be here. Musicians. I am in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm talking to Amy Mann. Great to talk to you. And song exploders. Rishikesh Hirway, welcome to Depression Mode. Thanks so much for having me. Everyone's opening up on Depression Mode on Maximum Fun. The miscellaneous topic this episode is items the British Museum has that they probably shouldn't. Yes! Tom and Ella are very excited. Ella especially seems to be like so <laughs> into this. I will share, I don't think I've hidden my opinions of Britain's colonial past, you know, <laughs> throughout this. This episode, I really want to push it down everyone's throats about my thoughts about that. <laughs> Crystal clear here. Yeah, I yeah. Understand. Um, and we're going to chat about my personal top, maybe three, five, depending on how Ooh. much time we've got, items that the British Museum has that it probably shouldn't. We're going to talk about the history of some of these items, how they ended up in England or in the British Museum itself, mm-hmm. and then chat about uh, some of the opinions of the general public here in the UK mm-hmm. about these items. First off, a little bit of information about the British Museum for listeners who don't live in London or in England. The museum is dedicated to human history, spanning two million years of human history, having around six million visitors per year. The British Museum has around eight million artefacts in its collection, making it one of the largest and most comprehensive. Good grief. Of those eight million artefacts that I just mentioned, around 99% are in storage in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's unclear how many of those artefacts could have the label of stolen on them. Eight million is... So much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I never knew it was that much. It's it's a humongous collection. And I think it's a shame that so much of it is just not on display somewhere. That's a great point. Yeah. Like literally 99% of it is just in a warehouse somewhere. In the Disney vault. Yeah. <laughs> With the Song of the South. Yeah. Yeah. Where it belongs. Got, I'm sure they got that. <laughs> they can, actually, they can keep that one, I will say. Um, so I know museums like the Science Museum, which is where I currently work, are planning on opening up some of their storage facilities for public to oh, go cool. and have a look around, which is really cool. I have no clue if the British and what Museum you do is you let the that. you let the public go in gloveless and you let them touch it with their grubby oh, little yes. fingers. Absolutely, you, well, you let them go in. You can just grab something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's also stuff that's very controversial about some of the items uh-huh. that are on display. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, I'm have so excited to either begin. of you to heard of some of these more controversial items that the British Museum has in its collection. Uh, Ella, I feel like you might Maybe. have. Yeah. Tom, do you want to go first? No, I'm I'm much less familiar. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> I, I've been to the British Museum one time and I didn't know when they closed. So I only was able to be there for like literally half an hour. No! Um, so I, I'm not familiar with um, uh, is there can I ask, is there controversy around the Rosetta Stone? 
Yes. Do they have yes, the Rosetta Stone? They do have the Rosetta Stone. I, that's the one thing I saw. Do yeah, they have yeah. an Easter at Island Head? They do. We're going to talk about both of these. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I know a lot of places that have Easter Loads of places have Easter Island Heads, not just the British yeah. Museum. And yeah. There are a lot of Easter Island Heads. There's about 900 of them mm-hmm. that were made. I say. So. Just, just um, and maybe I'm wrong. I feel like that's that's very hard to accidentally end up in your museum. Some <laughs> like of them weigh something like be like eighty-four tons. Some of them yeah, weigh. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, that accidentally fell in my luggage on the Oops. way home. I guess we'll we'll keep it here. It's already Where here. Where did this come <laughs> from? Oh. oh boy. One that I want to mention, but I'm not going to talk about a whole lot today, is a lot mm-hmm. of human remains are in the museum's yeah, collection. That's... Yeah. Yeah, especially stuff like from ancient Egypt and places like that. According to the British Museum website, the museum has over 6,000 human remains in its collection. Wow. The, The museum says that the human remains are managed in a way that protects the collection for the benefit of present and future generations. Mindful of ethical obligations, the museum ensures that the human remains held in its care are always treated and displayed with respect and dignity. Hmm. Mm. Mm. I, yeah, I don't know how much respect and dignity mm. human remains can have if they're on show for six million people a year. Uh, it's also you can say you're mindful of ethics. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. it's easy enough to say that. Um, totally, yeah. Especially hmm. after British colonialists went into said country and removed those remains from their burial site and took yeah. them across. You such think as... particularly about mummies, right? Yeah. Like yeah, totally. literally taking them from their ceremonial burial. It's like, uh-huh. you know, you know. That's that a pretty you... great point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I'm imagining like uh, someone digging up the the for Americans like the tomb of the unnamed soldier like in Washington DC and they're just being like yoink yep this is cool yeah, this is. Now. yeah so that's I'm not going to talk about human remains but that's sort of the vibe that we're going yeah. for today um, you both mentioned the Rosetta Stone it was first discovered by the French in 1799 oh huh yeah yeah However, the troops that were transporting the stone out of Egypt were then defeated in battle by the British. <laughs> who kind of went, hmm, that looks fun. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Wow, that, can I say that really slams us into the context of where, what kind of situation yeah. this shit is happening Absolutely, in? Absolutely. Because I yeah. feel like, you know, we all like to think fucking, you know, it's like, a team of diverse archaeologists all came together uh-huh. and they're like blowing the stone away and they're like dusting it off and they're like, we should bring this to to England. And it's, it's literally like two armies fought over it. Yeah, because totally. They like wanted... that, that really, really highlights the sort of bullshittery that was going on at the time. Because it wasn't just the Rosetta Stone that was being transported by the French troops. Mm-hmm. A lot of artifacts were being taken at the time. And the Rosetta Stone was specifically like highlighted in the negotiations between the two troops as like the Brits wanted this. They knew how important it was going to be for translating hieroglyphics. And they were like, oh, we're definitely taking that. Wow. So it was discovered in 1799 by 1802. It had come back to England and had been placed in the British Museum, where it has been displayed almost continuously 
ever since. Wow. Yeah, really long time. I am going to go and see it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> I know I should. And you're going to throw some Campbell's soup on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm going to talk about, because I've been to the British Museum. There are mm-hmm. things in there that I have seen and I still didn't fully understand what the items were until I was researching mm. this topic, which highlights an, a general issue with holding on to these items. Totally. We'll chat about that yeah. in a minute. Yeah. So there have been many, many calls for the Rosetta Stone to be returned to Egypt since at least 2003, with several very important people in Egypt even asking for the stone just to be loaned back oh. for three months. And they were just, just like, no, no. Yeah, so this has not happened yet. Uh, the British Museum did give uh, Egypt a replica oh of my the stone. Oh, my Jesus Christ. Right. And writer John Ray, who was the writer of The Rosetta Stone and the Rebirth of Ancient Egypt, great book, says, the day may come when the stone has spent longer in the British Museum than it no ever did way. in Rosetta. That sucks. Just because they don't think the British Museum or the British government will return this stone. Hey, hey, Caroline, can I tell you something? I didn't know Rosetta was a place. No, no, that I did not know either. <laughs> kind of. That is where and the Rosetta you know stone what? was found. I understand why um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why they they obfuscate that a little bit because then it's yeah. like, hey, why is why is it the Rosetta Stone not in Rosetta then? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that. So I don't know if you're going to talk about this at all, but... Basically, the in Britain that because of how many stolen artifacts we have, it's written into law that we're not allowed to return them unless it's agreed yeah. upon by the government. Yeah, it was this what? year. This year they changed the law slightly to allow museums the right to return things that they feel like they have a moral obligation the to return. The right to return. It's yeah, but only yeah. if they're of low value. Yeah. Yeah. So <gasps> it's often if they're of low value or if they're damaged. Legally, yeah. museums can't return high value artifacts. What? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this was a huge Legally, issue, and this is an issue can't. that stands in all of these artifacts, is that they are worth so much that the British Museum cannot give it back. That's like saying, legally, yeah. we're not allowed to apologise to you. Oh, my hands that are tied. Ba- no, that actually. basically is what they're saying. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it can. High, wow. high value items have been returned, but they have to be living people who show that they're it Get the fuck contains out of cultural significance value to them, and they have to have it well established and written out that it can be returned. Then, this otherwise, is if a country up. asks for the Rosetta Stone back, the argument would be there are no living people who yeah. could value the Rosetta Stone, therefore, they don't deserve to hey, have it. Hey, none back. in, none in yep. London either, I gotta tell you. No, you're right. That's you're, a whole other no, thing. No, no, I know, and I know we all agree. I That's, completely, I can, you know, I just, course, I, I know it we is all ridiculous. Do. I'm just, yeah, and I, I, I don't want to shoot the messenger on this, on you telling me this. I just did not realize how deep this ran. That's... It's fucked. Whew. Yeah, totally. I learned all of this stuff from a, a podcast called Stuff the British Stole. <laughs> oh, fun! Uh, which each episode covers a different um, artifact. And oh, it, goes to, it goes to the country it's from and talks to the people who oh, are like, amazing. this is what it means to wow. us. Yeah, and it's really, really interesting. So I recommend oh, listen, that. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Shall we move on to a different yes. item? Yes, please. And another item that you both mentioned, the statues from Easter Island. Mm-hmm. How much do we know about those? I know that I, I know when I was younger, I saw pictures 
depicting their bodies being underground. And that's ever yeah. since then it has stuck with me that they're not really heads, they're just giant bodies underground. I know that's <laughs> not the case, but I can't get it out of my head. Yeah. So often they are usually the head or parts of the torso. Sometimes they have arms as well oh. that are often placed in various places across Easter Island. Does anyone live on Easter Island? They do, yeah. Okay, this makes it even worse. I thought Easter Island was uninhabited. No, so Easter Island or uh, Rapa Nui is what the locals or the indigenous people mm-hmm. call the island, and that's what I'm going to be referring to it of course, from as now you on. Um, yeah, so Rapa Nui is an inhabited island. It was colonised by uh, Polynesian people in about 1000 AD. Not long after that, they started carving these stones. These stones are not just called stones or statues, they're called stone moai, and mm. that's what we're going to... Are, those are what we're going to talk about, because not only does the British Museum have one, it has two of them, mm. which is so fun. One for you and one for our guests. <laughs> <laughs> so there are two stone Mawai. One, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best. I was set up for so long last night repeating these names, and I still don't know if I'm going to get them correct. Uh, so one is called the Hoa Hakanana Ia, and one is Mawai Hava. Only Hoa Hakanana Ia is actually on display at the moment. It's Hoa Hakanana Ia on display. The other one is in storage at the moment. There's something really just sad about that. Yeah. <laughs> right? it's, it's so sad, isn't it? Yeah. So I've seen Hoa Hakanana Ia several times in the British Museum mm-hmm. before writing this episode, mm-hmm. and I did not know anything still yeah. about the history or the significance of these items. Right. Other than that there were loads and loads of other stone mawai on the island mm-hmm. as well. So, the stone mawai were originally constructed, we believe, to represent ancient Polynesian ancestors. Mm. They also have probably had a deeply religious or spiritual aspect to them, with many people believing that the act of carving these statues and presenting them in a certain way gave them magic, which could then help with crops and things like that on the island. Uh, Hoa Hakananaia's ritual function is also thought to have changed a couple of hundred years after it was constructed. So we Mm. believe that this was constructed between 1000 and 1200 AD. By 1500 AD, its ritual purpose had changed, Mm. uh, where the statue was more strongly associated with the Tangata Manu, also known as the Birdman religion, which took hold on the island mm. at around that time. And that's what all of the carvings on the back of the statue represent. That's interesting. So you don't usually see those on other statues. We also believe that this Mawai was moved from its original location. So mm. obviously a lot of them are on that one hillside overlooking the sea. This one was found in a ceremonial house made oh. out of stone, which is important for in a second. Because this is where the British colonisers found the statue in 1868. Uh. Mm-hmm. The British survey ship HMS Topaz. The crew then went in and dismantled the stone ceremonial house, unearthed <laughs> Hoa Hakananaia, and took it back to their ship by sledge. The statue was then presented to Queen Victoria, who then donated it to the British Museum, and it's been there ever since. Cool. It's a very similar story for the other Stone Mawai as well. I'm just, you know what makes me so sad is I'm, see, I'm, I'm picturing in my head the, the rubble and the sledge tracks. Yeah. That's, uh, uh, on and, this and, also, yeah. and also, just for, for fucking for, for Queen Victoria to be like, oh, thank you for this. 
wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> this thing that means like, nothing to me. Oh, give uh-huh. it to the museum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In November of 2018, the governor of Rapa Nui made an appeal for the statue to be sent back to the island as yeah. part of a loan agreement. They go on to say, we all came here, but we are just the body. England people have our soul. Mm. And it is the, the right time to maybe send us back the statue for a while so our sons can see it as I can see it. You have kept him for 150 years. Just give us some months and we can have it on Rapa Nui. Mm. It's, so, really it's so sad that it's literally just, yeah. just to borrow. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're literally, same with Rosetta Stone, they are literally just begging to be able to loan it for a period of time so that native people on the island can view these items for a period of time. And that's one of the reasons why I don't think that these, like the British Museum, I know that there are people who work there, researchers and things, who probably Mm -hmm. really care very deeply about history, although having heard some of their opinions on returning this stuff, I don't believe that they have the best um, opinions mm-hmm, either mm-hmm. you know the, a museum should be concerned wholly with the history of and like the meaning of these these artifacts and they're clearly not because they're not even willing to consider lending yeah. them back to where they are most significant and it's just yeah. mm-hmm. it just it really hits you about like how little they care that it's not it's about value over uh yeah. historical yeah, meaning absolutely. Mm-hmm. so there's uh, my, my final example that i'm going to talk about today does involve the British Museum offering to loan it. Mm. The British Museum shares its position on these items on its website, with the following being their official statement. Uh, I have it the here, museum... also pulled up. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Her Majesty declares finders keepers, losers weepers. <laughs> Um, the museum recognizes the significance of the museum recognizes the significance <laughs> right right <laughs> the museum recognizes the significance of Hoa Hakanana Ia's and Mui Hava for the Rapa Nui community today and acknowledges the impact of their removal from the island in 1868 however <laughs> Its presence increases public understanding of the history of Rapa Nui, its people's artistic achievements, past, present and future, and the challenges faced by the community today. The challenges faced from the British colonialism. Right, fucking right. So We're funny. making problems so that we can talk about them. <laughs> Woo, aren't we so amazing? Um, the strength of the British Museum's collection is its breadth and depth which allows millions of visitors an understanding of the cultures of the world and how they interconnect, whether through trade, migration, conquest, peaceful exchange, or other interactions both in the past and today. Interactions. Right. The argument that it has more value in the UK where people can learn from it is a really common argument by like yeah, uh, yeah, scholars totally. in this area, which is just, it's so hollow to me. Yeah, yeah. Which is why I wanted to highlight the fact that I've seen this statue and I still knew very little about it. No, because you, yeah. you don't go in and like learn about the cultures of these people. No. You think, ooh, cool looking thing. You know exactly, and the like thing. a lot it's of the these thing. Exhibits, it's the thing. It's the big head. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. It, oh, it's that thing. And a lot of these exhibits have two hundred words describing hmm. what the item is, if that, if they're lucky. Like that cannot 
explain the significance of these items to the community that they came from. The best people to do that are people from the community, mm. probably in the place where the community actually is. At the very least, if they were going to say something like that, they should make at least a a show of inviting people from that community yeah, exactly. to yeah. talk about those objects, to write about mm-hmm. them, to do to do exhibitions, but they don't do that either. Yeah, yeah there no. there are very viable real circumstances where the British Museum could morally have these objects if yeah. Yeah. they were in communication with these communities who are still there or yeah, totally. or deals were made or even and I, you know I think about like fucking if, if you guys have a replica of the Rosetta Stone who fucking who cares if it's if it's the real it's behind mm-hmm. like 10 inches of glass like anyway like yeah. what who who cares yeah we're not gonna know the difference mm. but yeah there are there are totally real ways of 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 doing this besides this like zero tolerance like never giving it back yeah no take backs yeah. policy yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely so we probably have time for one more example the final one is one that maybe less people know about it's still a very famous one it's the Magdala collection. Have either of you heard of this? No. 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 So this collection contains around 80 objects taken from a mountaintop fortress in northern Ethiopia, which was the seat of power for Emperor Tuadros II. And it's also known as the Magdala Fortress, which is why it's called the Magdala Collection. The collection includes ceremonial crosses, chalices, weapons, textiles, jewellery, as well as tablets, which are altar tablets that consecrate a church building. Th- these are basically highly sacred objects within the o- mm, Ethiopian mm, Orthodox mm. tradition. Incredibly sacred to these people. So, how do we think the British Museum got this collection? They asked nicely good, and they traded. Hint. They did a little Pokemon oh, murder. murder, murder. Oh. Ten points for Ella. It's, it's so much murder. <sighs> In 1867, an expedition of 13,000 British I'm sorry, what year soldiers. again? 1867. Too recent. Not all of too, these are too, recent, too recent, but, but right? boy, how these. So this expedition was launched with the stated aim of freeing British hostages that were currently in Magdala. Okay. According to the British Museum, the purpose of the expedition was never to annex territory. No, no, no. It's never to oh, annex territory. Oh, that just territory. sort of accidentally... Mm-hmm. <laughs> they just sort of accidentally Jesus killed Christ. the emperor. You Jesus know, they Christ. accidentally did that thing. This massive military assault, which was carried out in 1868, resulted in the destruction of Magdala's fortress and the death of hundreds of the army in place at the time, wounding thousands more with limited British casualties. And during the invasion, the emperor ended his own life rather than being taken Mm. a prisoner. Contemporary written accounts describe widespread looting of the fortress and church by soldiers and released hostages. Many of the pillaged objects were subsequently reassembled and auctioned off. Mm. So that's the story behind these objects. Doesn't fit on a plaque, does it? So, according to the British Museum website, over the last five years, there have been several requests and discussions around returning at least the most sacred of the items. The British Museum has agreed to loan back these objects to Ethiopia. However, Ethiopia has refused the loan as it would acknowledge England's ownership of the items. Yeah, Yeah, fair enough. Yep, absolutely. Don't worry, though. The British Museum compromised with Ethiopian officials. 
saying, in line with earlier agreements with the church and in light of their sacred nature, the tablets specifically from Magdala are not on public display. They are housed in a location specifically set aside for the purpose, created and maintained in close consultation with the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Great. Cool. Right? Great. Compromise. Amazing. So, yeah, so that is sort of where I want to leave. We've got the general vibes of what the items are that are being held by the British Museum. Mm-hmm. There are a lot more items than this. There will be resources in the show notes if you would like to learn about any more of these. Mm-hmm. Tom, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... I feel like it's it's almost stupid, the level of, like, Empathy 101 this is, of, like, imagine... Yeah if someone else stole the Lincoln Memorial or something mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, in, a, in, in, a, in a violent conflict. Um, yeah. And, you know, the point I keep coming back to is like, there are very likely realistic situations where like they could come to agreements and still have a lot of things at the British Museum most yeah, of the time. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like, it's not like the end of this is the British Museum is completely empty. It's very likely yeah, that like, yeah. Listen, it's all most of it's in storage anyway, and 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 mm-hmm. the 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 potential for really meaningful collaborations. Um, yeah, actually, yeah. learning like archaeological and historical learning that can yeah. be done here is you know that is being passed over as well. I wonder how much of this is linked to yeah, like definitely. value, like monetary value, like what the valuation awesome. of like um, the Rapa Nui stones. You know how like how yeah. much are they worth, and if the ambitious museum goes gives them away how much is their value as a museum depleted that's a very interesting factor yeah so there are obviously arguments another one that i saw which really rubbed me up the wrong way which a lot of people in britain believe is that because these items were stolen by the british they therefore have become part of British history (laughs) and therefore mean the same to us, if not more, than they do to the countries that they were taken from. Oh, God. I mean, I I think they are part of British history. Let's be clear. There's no point in brushing over the fact that Britain did these things and they stole these things. Like, if anything, that should be well advertised on them in the British Museum. That's like saying, oh, they're part of British history, but let's ignore the part of British history that we don't like, though. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. really a having your cake and yeah. eating it too. Gosh. So, 35% of Britons oh. believe that these objects are just as much a part of our history. And 6% believe that they are mm. more part of British history than they are the history of the countries of Ooh. origin. Oh, boy. Huh. Oh, boy. I mean, I right? believe they are part of British history, but only in a technical sense, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing is like, yes, they are a part of British history. How much of that specific part of Brit- British history is actually acknowledged? Yeah, yeah. If yeah, you're exactly. with, yeah, yeah. When you're talking about these items. I'll make a deal items, with you. If you have a big ex, if you if you make the British Museum the British War Museum or the British Colonial Museum, then I'll yeah, let exactly. you keep them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can I? Okay, uh-huh, two uh-huh. things. Tell One, me specifically the story about yeah, how it's like you're them. only yeah. if it's British history, you're only allowed to talk about the British history aspects of it. Second, yeah, I would love to go to that yeah. museum. <laughs> executives listening i would i would pay for that uh there is one tiny thing that i should mention 
60% of Britons agree with returning oh. the items. So 60% of the UK that's, population wow. agrees that it's a that's good better than I thought. to return these items. Yeah. It's much more than I thought. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's totally. Great. It's also worth noting that other countries are returning these items. Not always by choice. So there were 27 items which were seized from the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York after investigations deemed that these items had been looted. This was in September of this year. Wow. Hell yeah, baby. There were 58 pieces altogether, 21 of which were part of those items seized from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And these items were returned to Italy, which was their country of origin. Again, from the same museum in 2019, a sarcophagus was returned to Egypt after it had been stolen. But it was actually stolen in 2011. Mm. Uh, and again, what? this is something that Tom mentioned a little bit earlier was... Why is it different if it was stolen in 2011 rather than in the 1800s? Is there a difference? No. <laughs> we just didn't I care as so. much then. No. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So yeah, as you can tell, I might be slightly biased. I don't think I'm biased. I think I'm right. <laughs> uh, I'm biased, but, um, but I'm um, also right. Yeah. I just want to say, I feel like Caroline and I are particularly passionate about this, but I... I one of the reasons I think that I think that is the case is because uh, you don't get taught this stuff in the in Britain. Yeah. No, I only Not learned any of this as an adult. So a lot of the kind of feelings of righteous indignation they're, they're yeah. still like they're still real fresh. <laughs> the thing that makes me optimistic, you know, it makes me sad if we miss out on this, and and makes me optimistic if we do get it. Is again the huge opportunity for learning here right yeah because it, yeah, it, and again this isn't like a thing where like we just give the item back it becomes a conversation it becomes yeah. this 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 interconnectedness and this dialogue that is it, what the, the whole fucking point of a museum is right is is yeah, to learn about absolutely. these things and 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 so it, it, it is a it's that could be so great yeah <clears throat> wop, 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 wop. Oh shit! Yeah, <laughs> it's me. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's, what's it's, it's it's review corner. Hey, hello. hello. You know what I think would cheer you up? A little review from Review Corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today's review comes from Nancine, and they say it is hard to compress all the thoughts I have on this podcast into one review. But here goes. This is the ultimate podcast to educate you on both the awesomeness of humans over time, toys, nail polish, rascaldom, uh, as well as their horrors, plastic, capitalism, humans being jerks, <laughs> all within the frame of quality, evidence-based scientific research, covering a range of science topics including chemistry, biology, sociology, anthropology, cognitive science, and way more. Caroline, Tom, and Ella are three lovely hosts who share an ever-growing dynamic. It's so wonderful hearing three humans validate each other, tease each other, and bounce ideas off each other so freely and enthusiastically. When you combine all this science, wonder, and love for learning, what other way could you describe this podcast except as magical? But also, wasn't today's episode such a fantastic example of us showing how amazing humans are and how <laughs> shitty that's so humans true. are? That sums up what this podcast is so well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. 
I'm actually doing a little bit of a cry because I'm feeling quite emotional right now. So oh. thanks. Oh, I can come and give you a hug in a second. It's just it's just been raining. <laughs> it's, it's allergies oh, in November. Else. All right, go on, Tom. Uh, Finish this. Do you all have any plugs or shout outs? Um, I said I would shout out to my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Emily and Andy. <laughs> they might not even they might not even listen to this far into the podcast. But if they do, hi. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> hi. Uh, That's so funny. I wanna do a quick plug. Uh my PowerPoint comedy show that I mentioned uh a while ago doing is now up on YouTube and you can check it out if you missed it oh. then. Um, you heard me talk about how much I love PowerPoint. Now you can hear me be a complete goof. Um, and two big supporters of that, Emily and Andy. <laughs> Gotta give them a shout out, really. Aww. Couldn't have done it without you two. Also, come and hang out with us on Discord. You can find the link for it at letsletteverythingpod.com. Don't forget to submit your Q&A questions for us for our New Year episode. So, on today's wide-ranging episode uh we learned about the science of naming things across all the sciences we learned about the journey to get to the number of how many cells there are as well as all the different kinds of cells there are in the human body and we learned about all of the things that the british museum not all of them <laughs> Oh yeah, we learned. Sorry, we, we learned about a tiny fraction about all of the yeah. things that the uh, the British Museum should get back. And you can join us all next time, where we will learn about everything. everything. Let's learn everything is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted and produced by Ella Hubber, Tom Lum, and Caroline Roper, with editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lum. Caroline, you're still in my house. I'm still in your house. <laughs> what are you doing? We're done recording, Caroline. You're supposed to disappear now. <laughs> I closed the Zoom and you're gone. I, I just like dematerialize out of here. I'm like a tardis. I keep on forgetting that you're in my house. <laughs> For those listening to the cold outro, Caroline is, or the cold open. Whichever end this ends up at. Caroline is is recording from a different room in, in Ella's apartment. I don't have Wi-Fi <laughs> in my new flat. And therefore, uh. I'm in Ella's bedroom, which is where Ella usually records. And it's fucking weird. It's very strange. Yeah, it's, it's, it's messing with me. Yep. It's very strange. Yeah. Uh, okay, guys. You should do a, a real swip, swippy swap where you, one of you is here and then one of me is there. Oh, now Imagine that would be fun, wouldn't just it? one of us turns up in your room. <laughs> but you're also there and you don't know and we come up in the back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it next Halloween. Yeah. Um. <laughs> MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.